You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. We might start. Well, welcome everyone. Thanks for coming along today on this absolutely beautiful Saturday here at M Pavilion. Um, I'm Kiri Daly. I'm one of the co-leads on the RMIT Place Lab initiative. Um, and before we crack into the panel, I'd just like to say Womanjika, welcome. Um, and I'd like to acknowledge that we're on the land of the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of this unceded land that we're on. And I'd like to respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders, past, present and future, as the original and continuing makers of place. So, for those of you who might not know much about RMIT Place Lab, um, I just want to say that we're an RMIT initiative that's all about connecting up the community with academics, researchers, industry, institutions, and um, really to work on some short, sharp, actionable research projects that are really about what we're all facing here as urban challenges, social, economic, cultural, um, environmental, and we put ourselves out there into the community um, to work with local experts, all of you, to really sort of think about some of those big macro global problems and challenges, but to sort of face them at a hyper-local level and really sort of hear from the people that are living in those areas that have had that lived experience on what they're experiencing and how we can then take some of those um, information and insights and sort of put them into sort of recommendations and solutions for uh, new ways of, of doing things. Um, so one of the um, projects that we're doing as part of RMIT Place Lab first cycle is called Living Together and it's been a fantastic um, opportunity for us to really look at um, some of these new housing typologies that are sort of happening um, and especially happening in Brunswick. And we've been doing that in our Brunswick studio right there on Union Street opposite Jewel Station. And we've had the fabulous Rebecca Roke as our academic lead, um, who's really been um, looking at this subject. And, and tonight, today's a really great opportunity for us to sort of hear from some of the insights and activities that she's been doing. And also, especially from some of those that are living in these, this collective deliberative housing um, sets that we have and really sort of hear from them on sort of what it's like, what they're experiencing and um, we can then take some of those insights and we're putting them into some of our reports. Um, so I would just like to say thank you and I'll now hand over to Rebecca um, and our fabulous panel to um, take over and have the conversation. So thanks very much. Um, also, thank you to M Pavilion for um, their time today and allowing us to be part of the program. And thank you to our Place Lab team who've done an amazing job. And thank you all of you coming along today as well. So over to you, Rebecca. Thank Great. you. Thank you, Kerry. And welcome and so excited and pleased that you're here. And hopefully we can help um, uh, unpack some of the queries and questions that uh, you might have about living in collective housing. Um, so our PlaySide project has really been about researching this idea of living together um, at density and specifically looking at housing innovation in some of these collective housing projects in Melbourne, um, what that might look and feel like to live in. And today we are very fortunate to have our brilliant uh, panellists here to help unpack that um, what it's like to live collectively 
through their actual lived experience. So I'd like to introduce Johanna Slapolo Chan, who's at Balfe Park Lane in Brunswick East. Ray Wolford, who is from 122 Roseneath Street in Clifton Hill, and Jen Drysdale from Nightingale 2 in Fairfield. Um, just before we get into the panel discussion, I'll just briefly outline uh, the schedule for the event today. So I'll just make a short introduction to the project theme, and then we'll enjoy the panel discussion for around half an hour or so, and then it's over to you. <laughs> so any burning questions you have, um, we'll hand over to audience Q&A. Um, so feel free to take notes. You might already have questions that you want to ask the panel. Um, if I could just ask you to think of a one-sentence question that you'd like to ask either one of the panellists or the panel as a whole. And then we're aiming to wrap up by 12 noon. So just in terms of kind of framing the um, project itself, really we wanted to understand what is life like really living in uh, these projects and does it make a difference to live in a collective housing project as compared to perhaps what we might normally find in Australia, which is typically a standalone home or else a speculative apartment. Um, so we were really curious to learn, you know, is it joyful or is it annoying or a bit of both? Um, how do residents take decisions together? Uh, how do they share and use resources? Uh, are there elements about this type of housing that perhaps have taken them by surprise? Um, and also to really understand what are the main reasons why people might consider this type of housing as compared to the other, other sorts. I just thought maybe before we move on, um, could I have a sense of how many of you know what collective housing is? Are you familiar? I imagine many of you are familiar with that term. Yeah, okay. Um, it can be a bit confusing. There are many different types of collective housing. There's sort of some key precedents like Danish co-housing, uh, German uh, Baugruppe, and also the Swiss cooperative model, the kind of three key European precedents. And then of course here in Melbourne, uh, there's all sorts of different providers and I'm sure many of you will know Nightingale Housing, Assemble Futures, Property Collectives, as well as quite a few other self-organized sort of grassroots initiatives about living collectively together. So we're really sort of using this term collective housing to describe sort of an um, umbrella term for all these different types of approaches rather than trying to be specific about each, each one. And I guess one of the main things to point out about their point of difference is really, um, it's sort of a primarily an alternative to a speculative market-led financial tool, but rather it's really sort of aiming to offer um, this idea of durable social networks and sustainable living practices um, with this focus on shared resources. And often these shared resources are sort of in three main areas, which is land, social capital and amenities. So you're also probably quite, quite familiar with the idea of the fact that it might be to do with having communal laundries or having shared gardens, roof spaces. Uh, some of them have uh, areas given over to open kind of landscaped areas and circulation paths. Um, also some of them have this sort of idea of actively encouraging property management by the residents. Uh, so this idea of inviting decision making by consensus rather than a kind of top-down uh, body corporate sort of control over these uh, properties. And again this sort of overall aim is this in, in, inspiration of uh, durable social networks and sustainable living practice, and by extension, this idea of sort of encouraging or creating a sense of community um, or neighborliness within a housing complex. 
So let's turn to our panel <laughs> to discover uh, some insights into what it's actually like uh, in those situations. And Jen, I thought maybe we'll start with you. Um, you're obviously a Nightingale resident, and I wondered, would you like to share uh, why you chose to live in that Nightingale 2 project? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Jen, and yeah, I, I've, I've lived in the area um, near Fairfield for a while. Um, the northern suburbs are my home, um, but I have lived all over the world. And when I um, had a child uh, on my own, I decided that um, it was important to me to be connected to community more than ever. Um, and when um, a friend of mine who's studying architecture said, that block there is going to be a nightingale, I went, really? That tiny block there? <laughs> Um, I was already on the Nightingale list, but I was working part-time and so I knew I wasn't going to get a mortgage. Um, but then I moved to another job and I went, hang on a minute, I'm working full-time now. I can get a mortgage. Let's do this. So I put my hand up and, um, and we have a ballot system in Nightingale and I was successful in that ballot. It was early days uh, less people in the mix at that time, so um, yeah, there was plenty of plenty of possibility of of being successful in the ballot. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks so much. And Ray, um, I think it's quite interesting. You chose to downsize into the Roseneath Street project. Um, can you share what motivated that choice, and um, uh, why did you choose to retire into that one, perhaps rather than, say, an aged care village or something? <laughs> uh, yes. Well, we've never um, been interested in retirement villages. It, uh, they don't appeal, um, and we don't really feel all that aged either. Um, so um, we were looking at uh, various alternatives to... Uh, the, st the standalone house. We've been living in the same house for 39 years. Uh, it was a, an old weatherboard um, Californian bungalow and it needed um, maintenance. I mean, it had been maintained. But um, uh, we were getting to the point where we didn't want to spend money on it because they're all getting pulled down and, and replaced with two-storey, you know, French provincial faux um, uh, houses. And... Um, we thought that yeah, spending money on that would be a waste of, waste of resources. So we're looking around for something, some alternative. Um, buying another house uh, in a different place would probably cost just as much as we'd get f from selling it. So, so we were looking at um, more collective solutions. And we went through quite a number of possibilities. And uh, we even invested in uh, a painted deposit on one, but the uh, in a development in West Brunswick, but that, that fell through. And um, after several years of, of um, looking at places, um, we thought we really have to do something. And um, Roseneath, we'd, we'd seen advertised a few times and it looked pretty good. So we thought we'll give it, give it a go. And um, we went and had a look around, uh, decided the area was okay and, and uh, Paid our deposit on uh, on one, and um, we got the one we wanted. We, we there was a list of list of preference for uh, which one, uh, and uh, we got our first preference, which was uh, pretty surprising. 
Um, we moved in in August in um, 2018, so we've been there about four and a half years. Uh, it's quite a big development. There's about, about 60, um, 65, 66, something like that, um, houses and apartments. Um, so there's quite a lot of people there, probably 150 or more people. Um, and uh, quite a mix, quite a mix of people. We're probably the oldest ones there, but there are there is quite a, an age range of people there. There's from right from uh, newborn babies, uh, to school children, uh, young adults, uh, middle-aged people, and and the older ones. So um, it's it's quite a, a a representative sort of community, really. I suppose the the only part of the spectrum that's missing would be uh, families with. Um, older school children, high school uh, and uh, that sort of age. So uh, otherwise, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's, very, um, it's a very lively sort of place really because you get lots of little children running around. And, uh, Johannes, I think you mentioned a similar um, kind of uh, complexity in terms of diversity at, at Balfour Park Lane, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think the thing that drew me to Balfour Park Lane was the fact that, you know, there's such thing as community, right? And and you think communities, people that are like-minded in the same stage of life as you are, but really communities having someone, uh, having a place where you can actually grow into and, and as your life changes, you can adapt and hopefully, um, you know, stay in that, in that place and Bolf Park definitely has uh, that's one of the thing, one of the things that drew me to it it had you know townhouses for for young professionals and young families it had the the studio and the one bedroom apartments and then it all went all the way up to four bed um, apartments but you know they all had different types of um, uh, arrangements and, and it felt like you could actually live through that that building as you as you move through which really yeah drew to drew me that to it you're also obviously you're an architect when obviously you are an architect <laughs> and and a resident um can you maybe expand a bit on what were the qualities that you saw as a i mean as a design professional but also as someone living in one of those projects that really kind of got you across the line in terms of buying into the Balfour park lane so i um originally from perth and i moved to, to melbourne about eight nine years ago um, and I've always lived in the Brunswick area. Um, so when I was looking for, for my first home, um, you know, as, as an architect, we, we sort of want to um, find places that have that community um, spirit, you know, places that are um, accessible, lots of access to natural daylight and, and, and biophilia. Um, and when I saw Bolf Park, you know, it was on the park. Um, we have a, a young dog that needed a lot of space to run. Um, and I just really liked the way that it started to break it down into smaller clusters. Um, and one of the things that we really find um, the most sort of uh, interesting things is that, you know, with these smaller clusters, you actually form even stronger relationships. So um, it's, you know, there's the big apartment blocks that try and foster community. I think you need to break it down into smaller clusters for it to actually, you know, become meaningful. Have you found that also, uh, Jean? Yeah. Um, so, like most properties that are being built, there are delays. Um, and we found that we'd sold um, uh, an old property, uh, like a property that I'd had and had to, had to move back into. And there was this gap between, you know. So, I found an apartment and I said to one of the other Nightingale future residents, do you want to join us? So my son and me and her and her son. 
And she went, sure. I had one dinner with this woman. <laughs> so, um, so we got to know each other really quick. It was a two-bedroom apartment and there were two small – well, Milo was um, probably four at the time and my son maybe ten. Um, and that time stretched on. So, yeah, we got to know each other really well and, and, and that's been the basis of our connection a um, strong connection in this community. Um, we have connections with everyone in the community, but um, we, particularly during COVID, um, which happened six months after we moved in, um, would we created a bubble, um, two single mums and dinners um, throughout the week. Um, so, yeah, um, definitely, um, definitely have have those forged those relationships in the community. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something um, that um, both the other panellists have mentioned and that is the range of people um, in the community. Um, I find um, social housing generally to be pretty white and pretty middle class um, but uh, the Nightingale model provides um, to expand that a little bit by um, having some ballots for um, people who are Indigenous, women over 55, um, people with disability and key service workers. So um, to keep teachers, police, firemen in the community in which they work. Um, so, you know, that was relatively successful. Um, uh, we do live with um, a couple of people um, who aren't, don't look like us, um, which is nice. And one of the other um, apartment owners bought a second one and handed it over to um, Housing Choices. So I know that Nightingale now does that formally, but when when ours was established, it wasn't wasn't like that. So it was really nice of that um, older couple to do that and. Um, and we have a an Afghani woman, woman who's largely um, um, unable to to walk and stuff. So yeah, we we've got a little bit of diversity, <laughs> but let's face it, Fairfield's white. <laughs> what about um, the question of sustainability? This is just for all of you to um, comment on. Perhaps is often this seems to come up as a as a key driver for why one people might consider. Uh, collective housing, um, the idea of using resources more carefully, um, having that reduced energy loading, um, maybe priorities towards sharing amenities like vegetable gardens and laundries. Would you like to comment on how that sort of what that actual experience looks like in your projects? Um, we uh, Rosemary Street has a um, has a shared laundry and uh, workshop, which is uh, quite useful facility for bike maintenance and people do odd jobs with making things, painting them and all that sort of thing. Um, and the, the laundry gets very well used, very busy. Um, the, uh, we don't have uh, um, the, the gardens that Nightingale have on the roof, um, but we have um, uh, sort of planted gardens with uh, native plants largely um, on the first floor level, which um, is like a pseudo ground floor really because everything is, is up on that level or above and only the car parking is down on the ground uh, except for a couple of apartments facing the street. So 
this uh, shared walkway uh, and garden is, is there for, um, just for ambience, I suppose, and, and uh, provides quite a bit of screening between um, apartments and townhouses opposite them. So they're facing each other, but the, the plants are tall enough to um, stop people looking straight in. And um, But we do have a little area around the front now which we've, we've managed to uh, get the OC to agree, the Owners' Corporation to agree for that residents can um, grow uh, food in the little areas at the front with um, uh, a few tomato plants and, and herbs and things like that. It's gone a bit wild with tomatoes this year. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's a bit of activity. It, it, it doesn't really satisfy a lot of people's needs for gardening, but uh, some of us have got um, plots in little community gardens around the area, you know, not, not, right in, not in the building, but, but off uh, up the street. Uh, yeah, we, we probably could have used more, uh, and there was, in fact, a proposal to, to um, shift some of the air conditioning units on the roof uh, up onto the, uh, a couple of fifth floor uh, apartments on the very top and uh, use the, 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 that space there for a, a rooftop garden. It's still, it's still in uh, discussion at the moment, but uh, may, not, may not go ahead. What about, go on, Jean. I was just going to say, do you have a rooftop garden? Yeah, so Bolt Park, um, as Rebecca said, it's a it's a, a built-to-sell development, but it does take some of the ideas and, and elements of collective housing, like in Nightingale and, and some of the assembled projects. Um, but I feel it's it's a project that sort of starts to um, bring some of those elements to a broader mass market um, sort of development. So, you know, we all have our own indiv individual laundries. We have um, a communal rooftop. We've got all the communal gardens. Um, there's a sense of generosity. There's yeah. Less dense um, density in the in the building, um, so we've all got open walkways. All the, most of the apartments are dual aspect. So from there, you know, passive design principles. Um, I, I don't feel they're really incorporated too much into the mass market um, for apartment developments. But once you start to incorporate all these things, um, you start to get people to live a bit more sustainability, uh, more sustainable. Um, you know, our our air conditioning is hardly ever on, um, even in the hot summer days, just because of the orientation and we've got external blinds. Um, we've got opportunities to grow um, plants up. You know, they've got some cables on our on our walkways to start to, to give us another layer of protection. Um, so all of those sort of things, the more, I guess, you give the, the occupants ability to, you know, um, uh, adapt their environments, you know, the more sustainable the whole building starts to come. And you've got all your other, you know, sustainable um, initiatives like uh, green power, which was marketed, but we had to um, sort that out ourselves. But uh, things like that will, will sort of come along the way. Okay. Maybe we'll come back to the idea of, um, of participation in a minute. But Jen, maybe I just wanted to come on. One of the Nightingale um, sort of principles is the car-free uh, idea. Can you talk us through a little bit about how that actually uh, manifests and, and maybe if there's broader sustainability things at the Nightingale project? Sure. Um, so our building was designed without car parks at all um, and the intention was that everyone that moved in wouldn't have a car. Um, that failed and uh, much, much disappointment to me 
because that was one of the key features for me. Um, I had been living without a car for a while and I see it as a really important way of um, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and yeah, there's no doubt that it's a really hard um, shift to make. But um, it is, like most things, um, something that you just have to work at. Um, and so there's a lot of people... Um, there's probably about, uh, I would say, 75% of units in our building have cars. Um, they park on the street and that's annoying for the community um, because they're taking up space that um, the community wasn't expecting. So the council has something to say about that. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a few people in the community that resent um, um, the, that the Nightingale was built. It had problems getting through VCAT because of that plan. They knew it wasn't going to work. Um, unfortunately, um, they were right. <laughs> so um, there's people that have tried it and um, have sort of said, actually, we just can't do this. We've just got a new baby and, you know, or, you know, I need my car to get to work, etc. and stuff, stuff like that. So... Um, as much as there are incentives, we're working through how to um, encourage that more. And obviously, in the next 10 years, we'll all be driving electric vehicles. So, um, you know, looking to help council move and um, increase the number of charging stations in the area would would be great too. Um, in terms of um, our building and, and its sustainability aspects, um, we don't have air conditioning and um, we have ceiling fans. My, my apartment has never got over 26 to 27 degrees. Um, it was built and designed um, to do that. We do have heating. Um, I do like the heating. Uh, we've got that nice underfloor heating in the bathroom. Whew. Winters are great. Um, so, yeah, it is um, – we don't have any um, gas um, and my electricity bills are about $40, um, $45 a month um, and I have only other bills of water. So, if you compare that to what you're paying, it's um, pretty damn good if you ask me. Um other t in a, in so we're we're north south facing so the bedrooms are on the south side and and the north side is um, looking out onto the train station um, so yeah very accessible transport doesn't get better than that maybe a bit noisy sometimes peak hour train drivers have a have a um, what do you call it horn <laughs> got a horn fetish <laughs> um, anything else. What, what about, um, no, I think that's pretty good. I think another um, key sort of query or question is cost, obviously. Um, it's a key concern about housing more generally, but it is one of the questions that come up in terms of, you know, why would I buy collective housing as compared to a speculative apartment or a, or a house? Um, I think maybe it's important to point out that it's not necessarily affordable uh, housing, but... Um, Jen, maybe do you want to elaborate a tiny bit on, yeah, sure. on cost? Um, so Nightingale has a formula. Um, once you buy in now, you, you, your contract has um, a requirement that you sell back to the Nightingale um, community, so the list. Um, that wasn't in place when we bought. So um, we were kind of like a, 
you know, the second um, dry run, if you like. You know, they've been working things out as they go. So they they asked us – they had something in our contract, but it turns out it wasn't legally binding. So none of us ended up si- – well, I don't actually know if anyone ended up signing. Um, we've had a couple of sales, one sold back through Nightingale, and you do that on the basis that um, of this formula, which is such that – you bought for a reduced price because of the fact that there's no car parks, um, there's um, a communal laundry, so your footprint is smaller and you, so you're paying less for housing. Um, and But others have then sold on the open market. Not great. Um, in, the, in the three years that we've been there, not great increases in, in price but um, and some have had trouble selling. So, um, yeah... What about you, or Johannes? Maybe jumping to you because the sort of opposite end of the spectrum. It's a speculative market-led project with some of these sort of uh, shared housing qualities. What are your thoughts on perhaps value for money or cost around uh, that project or your your apartment, perhaps? Um, so yeah, when I was looking uh, to purchase my first house, I did look at Nightingale at one one point. There's a Nightingale just down the road um, on the corner. Uh, I also looked at, you know, townhouses, uh, but having to be further out um, and, you know, start to, to weigh the benefits of do you, you know, where you are in life. For, for me, I wanted to be close to work. I wanted to be close to friends. I wanted to live the lifestyle. That's why I moved from, from Perth to Melbourne. Um, and it just made sense. But but when you see the development, that it's got the, the right design qualities that you would, you know, of, of open space and generosity and, and um, that you, you know, might try and get when you move further out. It starts to, I guess, the, the value equation starts to work out a little bit better. Um, and, you know, the longer you are in a property, the, the more value you're going to get out of it. So it, it was just at the right point for me. Um, and obviously I bought at the, the dip of the market <laughs> before it went up, um, which, which was lucky. But I think there's still a, an added benefit of, you know, just think about how you want to live your life and how much time do you want to waste on your commute and, and things like that. If that is important to you, then, you know, I think there is value in, in, in living closer to, to where you want to be and, and you know, obviously I appreciate not everyone can, can af, you know, afford um, some of those you know, apartments that are close to the city but um, you know, developments that focus on design quality, not on finishes, will inherently have that value built into them. And what about in terms of, um, I mean, the idea of community, especially in this context, you know, nationally of, of um, an increase in loneliness, um, people's sense of lack of connection. Um, do you think that living in these kind of uh, collective housing projects creates a way to connect? And in what ways? <laughs> um, well, yes, I think our experience is that, that they, they do help. I mean, I think we know more people now in this building that we knew, than we knew in the street that we lived in before, I mean, because you're so much closer and you, you're passing people on walkways and so forth, which, uh, you know, in, uh, in an ordinary suburban street, you probably see them driving past in a car rather than walking on a footpath these days. And, um, yeah, the, uh, so there are, there are a lot of opportunities to meet your neighbours. And uh, we also we have a cafe downstairs on the ground floor uh, where people go for their morning coffee and so forth. And it's usually in good weather, at least, there's usually uh, quite a few groups of residents sitting out there um, 
having conversations. So um, yeah, it, it it works pretty well like that. In our view. Uh, but, but on the other hand, if you want to stay private, you can, <laughs> you can stay inside your apartment. You don't have to mix too much. And um, uh, it, it's uh, you know I think it it probably suits um, a lot of different personalities. Um. We, we the design of Nightingale Fairfield. I don't know if you've seen it. Put your hand up if you have. Um, so we have outdoor walkways, which actually is is more than just connecting in inside our community. But like I am often yelling at people on the sidewalk, um, nicely. Hey, hey, um, hey, Mick, can you book me a table for? Two tonight across the road in the in the restaurant across the road, or you know when people during COVID um, people would walk past on the other side of the station and ring me and go come out in your balcony and we'll have a talk. Um, so that interaction is just wonderful. I love it. Um, you can be you can come out your door and hear something. Or you can you can hear it when somebody's breaking into the bike room downstairs at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, <laughs> Um, that wasn't so much fun. Um, but, yeah, we, we have an amazing connection internally in the community. There are some people that are just like, you know what, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say hello to you when we pass, but they're not really engaging in the community. No problem. Um, we've got um, uh, my next-door neighbours about to have a baby and I'm just so excited. So even though I've moved on from that stage of life, I can still engage with it and... Um, yeah, give me that baby. <laughs> um, yeah, the community at Bolf Park Lane is um, actually really tight. And I think yeah, during the construction, you know, during COVID, we were all on Slack and, and Facebook and um, getting to know each other and, and, and discussing the, the, the build. And then when we got to move in, there was a whole defects thing and we all sort of banded together and <laughs> made legal threats to the builder for all this sort of stuff. So We um, still are. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, but... Yeah, in the first few months, yeah, everyone started, you know, started to put a face to the name and, and it started to grow quite quickly. And um, I found, so, so we're, we've got four apartments on our, um, or five apartments on our, on our level and um, we've got a retired couple and then there's sort of three, four um, young professionals, one with a young, young family. And, and you know, we've, because of the outdoor walkway, you know, it's a very easy place to just sort of bump into your neighbours, have that chat on, you know, the bench and, and, and start to form a connection without feeling too forced. Um, and, you know, it's now we have a, a dinner uh, between the five of us at five apartments um, every two two months and we just sort of rotate, uh, which is really nice. And, and we've also got um, uh, weekly drinks on the rooftop, uh, organised by Nina, <laughs> our chairperson. Um, but, you know, I think, yeah, it's just... Uh, if you give the opportunities for, for, for these things to happen, you know, people will just take it. And, and, um, and I like the fact that we've got a really diverse community. Like we've got um, re retired and, and young families and, and, and really old people as well. And it's just everyone's willing to help each other out. And, and that's really nice. So what about maybe asking the uh, elephant in the room question, underperformance? <laughs> Can you talk maybe a little bit more or if there are aspects um, about these sort of shared amenities or even the kind of dynamics of these projects that maybe haven't worked out as you'd expected or there are sort of elements of underperformance? Would you like to elaborate on that, Johannes? Um, so one of the things, so both Park is... Um, the main, I guess, uh, driver of design is the fact that it sits between a park and a main street. And um, 
there's, a, there's no way to get to the park along Nicholson Street. So they created this publicly accessible laneway. Um, it's quite generous. It's two levels in, in scale and, and it becomes, the, I guess, the, the first front door to the building. Um, that's where the lobbies are, our, our hub is, and that's how people get through to the park, um, which is great. So that's really, you know, drawn in the community, made it really active and, and permeable. But I guess the downside is um, when it gets too permeable, there's, there's issues like security and, and, and that's something that we've been um, facing uh, as a community over the last few months. Just, you know, there's passive security, but when, you know, uh, when there are so many ways to get into a building, it's very hard to control that. So that's been one part of the um, experience that we've, we, we didn't really think was going to happen. Um, and what's the other? What about the, um, I mean, the, the idea of multi-purpose and shared rooms, it seems, is quite a tricky one because mm. it's trying to be sort of all things to all people. Um, and just sort of anecdotally, it seems like sometimes that's sort of a frustration or, you know, doesn't work out exactly um, as, as you'd hoped. I was going to say, we, we've got this hub on the ground floor, which um, during the construction, we uh, had a bit of a resident vote to work out what it was. And it ended up being sort of a, a flex space, like some tables and chairs um, and some couches and, and some books. And I think, yeah, it hasn't been as successful as I thought. And, and maybe it's because, um, you know, we've got so many other great spaces to, to use and, and, you know, we've got the park and, and, and the rooftop. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard. Yeah, some of these things I think will take time. And it's only been a year. And hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll find a, a use out of it that's a bit more, more usable. Um, I don't think we have that many issues with the common space. Um, the only one that I can think of is that the room that we've got upstairs, um, which is, you know, beautiful floors, but it is a bit noisy for the people underneath who are um, older, probably our oldest residents, um, and they get a bit cranky sometimes. Um, so that's a bit of an issue. You would think that there's an easy fix, but not not always. Um, but yeah, we we generally just um, on Slack just say, hey, I'm going to um, have a two-year-old birthday party in the room on this date and everyone's like, yeah, sure, go for it. Um, so yeah, we generally, you know, either or in the, um, we have a fire on the roof as well and sometimes we'll just say, hey, come up and have a drink. We also have a bar downstairs now uh, <laughs> and an ice cream shop. So it's no good for the waistline. Just be careful. Ray, did you want to? Uh, yeah, um, probably everyone has this problem, but the the bin room is a perennial issue. Um, people don't follow the instructions. People put rubbish in the green waste. They put plastic in the cardboard-only bin. Uh, you know, it, they don't flatten the boxes. Uh, despite all the notices there, uh, it, it's unbelievable uh, whether people are doing it out of mischief mischievousness or, or they just can't read, I don't know. But uh, um, I followed I, two gelato papa girls into the bin room last night and said, hey, have you had training yet? No. As, as I was saying this, she was putting a plastic bag of rubbish into the cardboard. I'm like, see, that says cardboard only. Can you take that one out and put it? <laughs> so, yeah, we do have that problem too. Um, our, uh, we have a shared room, uh, a communal room. Uh, which is very nicely um, uh, fitted out. Uh, one of the first actions that residents took was to uh, buy some cutlery and crockery, uh, glasses and so forth. Um, 
and I think paid for from the OC um, budget, of course. But uh, so that 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 was an early action. And then we started having uh, communal dinners in there for we usually get about 20, 25 people. Uh, the tables and chairs in there, of course, but you can't can't seat more than about uh, probably about 20 people. Um, so, uh, you know, you can't actually accommodate all, all the residents. A lot of the residents, because uh, with young children, won't come along to evening uh, events like that because they've got young children to, to, to mind. Um, but that works quite well. I and mean, we have a, a booking system, electronic thing, and um, so people book it uh, for birthday parties and all those sorts of things. Um, gets very well used and it gets pretty well looked after. Another uh, thing we did actually, a bit of a retrofitting, uh, it used to be very echoey in the, in the room, very hard surfaces. Uh, we had um, soundproofing um, absorbent panels put up on the roof and it was very well done. We had some experts in the, in the field uh, living there who uh, helped with the design and um, it's, been, it's been very well implemented. What about um, this idea of um, privacy versus community? It's Again, it's another question. I think people are sort of a bit perhaps apprehensive about thinking about this sort of collective living, living closer to your neighbours. In terms of navigating that, are there any specific things you can think of that you would um, recommend or not recommend or comment about your, your respective properties? Um, yeah, so I think the thing that I like about Bolf Park is that, you know, there is that um, sense of you've got your own space, you've got the shared spaces in the middle, and then you've got the public spaces. So, um, you know, as I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, you know, not not everyone wants to share laundry and and, and have their <laughs> clothes on the show, or, or, or you know, not everyone. Um, some people do need cars and things like that. So, I think um, for for the mass market. Um, you know, the, the more of these elements you can sort of pick and choose and, and make it work for that local context, I think um, that will help give people a sense of, yep, I'm going to feel comfortable and safe in, in this space. So it's more about diversity. You know, some, some will, will have a bit more shared, some will have be less shared. I think that's the really important part of the conversation. All I have to say is we're very comfortable sharing our undies. <laughs> does get a bit difficult when everyone has the same Uniqlo things, though. And Ray, any thoughts on that? Privacy? How much degrees of privacy or kind of, of uh, privacy or community? I mean, it's quite interesting with um, Roseneath Street uh, and having those kind of runs of, of the um, gardens. So there's basically gardens that are planted and they have become sort of a quite helpful screen, but I, I understand at the beginning they were pretty small, weren't they? Oh, yes. Well, initially, the, the plantings were, you know, only so high off the, off the ground, but um, uh, there's some si quite sizable trees growing in there. I mean, there's very large uh, concrete planters which are sort of integral to the building. They're not loose things. Uh, so th they form, uh, not only are they uh, housing the plants, but they form a boundary between the common walkway and, and the um, private uh, courtyards in front of the houses and, and the apartments on that level. So it's only uh, this only obviously applies to the, the first floor, all the others uh, up in the air uh, can only look down on it, but they don't actually experience the same sort of green effect. Um, I suppose it's a compensation for not having any views down down on the first floor. You can't see anything except other, other parts of the building and, and the, all these plants. 
but uh, it, it has worked out very well. Um, garden maintenance is, is a bit of a, 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 a sort of running issue, you know, and, and uh, it, it, it sometimes gets away. The growth on all the plants, you know, can get a, uh, they can start closing in on you a bit, and makes the gateways rather narrow. Um, so the only breaks in the, breaks in the continuous line of planting is, is our individual gates from the walkway into our into our courtyards. And maybe just um, one last question before we hand over to uh, the audience. Um, this idea of that we sort of touched on, uh, Johannes, you mentioned about um, having kind of quite active participation or having resident control and that creating a sense of ownership and sort of, I suppose, uh, you know, appreciation for or, or control or integration with the building. Could you expand maybe a little bit on, on that? Because I think that's another issue that seems to come up if the people have control and are able to contribute to the way the building itself forms, there seems to be a sort of greater personal investment in it. Well, I think it comes down to, to pride, right? If you're proud of the space, you're going to want to, you know, um, to develop it, to, to make it work for, for how you, you know, the community wants to live. Um, Both Park isn't different from other buildings where it's just got a a strata and an an owner's court, but we obviously have a few subcommunities to try and break up the um, the tasks and 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 get the feel for what the community wants. Um, but I think yeah, the more spaces that you have to control, I think the easier it is to let the building itself, the, the people feel like they've got ownership on 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 different elements. What am I speaking on again? <laughs> the degree of kind of um, degrees of participation oh, yeah, or control from um, residents. Sorry, my mind went elsewhere. Um, yeah, I've been on the OC a couple of years. Uh, I'm not on it this year. I need a break. Trying not to um, be so involved. Trying not to trying to care less. It can be quite draining. It seems like there's the usual suspects that do everything. Um, the same. Um, group of people is always doing the gardening, is doing the graffiti, is doing the let's call the cops and organise the response to the break-in, you know. Um, and people um, play to their strengths. So, you know, some people are like, yeah, I'm happy to do the gardening. So I think there's a general level of respect for that. Um, I know that some people get pretty annoyed that um, some in the community are not so involved. Um, sometimes it's just introversion um, and there we are now getting a few people moving in who didn't sign up for Nightingale. Like they, 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 they bought in not knowing what it was really all about. So um, that hasn't um, thankfully been too much of a problem but it could be in the future, yeah. Uh, Rosenies doesn't really have any expectations, I think, of, of resident involvement in things. People do get involved in things and, uh, you know, some residents have bees in the bonnet about particular things and want, want to, uh, you know, things like uh, the gardening space. They'd like to you know, take over space to grow things themselves. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly there's no expectation and... and um, I mean, people. I don't, I don't think there's any problem with with um, people picking up things that need to be done, but but um, and certainly no sense that that it's in the control of a, a of a handful of people. Um, 
yeah, I mean, the garden maintenance uh, is is uh, d is uh, done by a professional gardener who's employed to come in on a regular basis and keep things trimmed and so forth. Um, yeah. Brilliant, thank you. So we might, um, now's your opportunity to um, <laughs> ask the panel, um, either a panellist specifically or the panel as a whole. So I'd just like to um, ask you maybe if you could, um, when you get the mic, um, give your name and give your one sentence question either to the panel or a particular panellist. Um, who would like to go first? <laughs> Do we have questions from the floor? Yes, at the back there. Thanks for that. I'm Nina and I also live at Balfe Park Lane. Um, and I'm really curious about what you found in your research or in the experiences of the panellists uh, about, yeah, so living in Balfe Park, it's, you know, people who are there who like the idea of collective living, but it's not designed in the same way as Nightingale. And I wonder if a pitfall of the Nightingale model is a kind of expectation that everyone signs up to same values, which can then lead potentially to conflict if not everyone acts according to those values, etc. Like, I wonder how much do you require conformity in Nightingale but you get great community versus in Balfour you have more privacy but there's less kind of intentional collectivism in a place like that. That one for Jen maybe as a Nightingale resident. Um, yeah, you're right. I signed up because they were a, it was a values match for me. Um, the Nightingale model, I studied environmental science in the 80s and I've been doing it ever since. Um, and it got to a point in my career where I was like, this is not working for me at the level that I want it to be in my professional space, so I'm just going to go hard on the personal. Um, and I, I was disappointed that everyone else wasn't where I was <laughs> when, when I moved in. But it's just that realisation that that's community and everyone's on a journey. So, um, w you know, we're all learning, we're all moving through that space and... Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I got told early on this is not Murundaka, so which is another um, learning uh, intentional community. Yeah, so I think there's a spectrum, um, but yeah, community itself, it it comes wherever people are open to it. Yeah. Do we have some other questions from the floor, Matt? <laughs> So I'm Matt. I just wanted to ask uh, all of you whether or not you'd moved, uh, like at this point in time, you'd ever move back into detached housing now that you've experienced collective housing. So the question, would you move back into detached housing now that you've lived and experienced uh, collective housing? Uh, good question. Um, that's something that me and my partner have been talking about um, the last couple of months, just, you know, in the future, whether we would, you know, move out for, for more space, um, but realistically right now, I think I could live here for a couple more years, um, and maybe if uh, one of our neighbours in the town has the cells, maybe I could buy that one, but, <laughs> um, but I think there's enough there for us to, to stay, and, and I don't feel that urge to, to, to go too far out into a detached house. If you can get one in the same suburb, then why not, but you know, I think there's enough there to keep, keep me there. Um, well, it's, it's largely a matter of economics for us. I think we, I don't think we'd want to be able to 
afford to buy a detached house in an area where we'd want to live. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're living close to the city. Uh, we like the amenities there. Um, and I uh, certainly wouldn't want to live on the fringe of Melbourne. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, but on the other hand, I don't feel that we're, we're sort of imprisoned here by, by economics, you know, in, in, in a shared place. So I quite like living there. Um, and I can understand that there are advantages of, of detached housing, particularly in terms of your own private land. Uh, but uh, we, we're getting on quite well where we are. I think the one reason that people move out of our Nightingale is that their children want open space, or they think their children do, because generally their children are on screens. Um, I'm... Uh, my bubble partner and I talk about this all the time because she has a history of just moving from place to place and so it's unusual for her to be staying so long in a place but we both agree that we have actually been broken like nowhere is going to be as nice as this like we have beautiful um internal space um so it's kind of like ah no <laughs> it would be cold we would have to have an air conditioner, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, I have a 15-year-old um, so and he's just got a girlfriend and so I actually kind of have to leave the house sometimes for him um, because it is a small space, right? Um, and he says that I'm moving out so that he can have this when he gets older. So um, it's a bit different. Um, but, yeah, I am approaching retirement, so it's kind of like, you know, I did have these ideas that I would be out in the bush somewhere, um, but, you know, finances will probably get me in the end and I'll probably still be there and he'll be out and I'll have a studio. <laughs> We've probably got time for one more question. Yes. Um, What's your name? Sorry? Hi, Merrick. Merrick. Hi, I'm Merrick. Um, thanks for sharing all of your great stories today. It's been wonderful to hear. I'm really... Uh, Today's conversation has largely been about the development scale, your, your buildings, although it has been hinted at about the relationships with the local neighbourhood. It's something I wanted to ask particularly the two of you about how that has been, whether you're being accepted into your local neighbourhood, whether there's been any, oh, you're from Roseneath Street, oh, you know, that might be higher density. Um, yeah, any reflections would be great. That's an interesting question. I don't really know the answer. Uh, we don't have a great deal of contact with uh, people living in, in houses in the, across the road and up and down the street. The, we're not the only multi-unit development. There have been a few factory conversions and so forth. But uh, yeah, I can understand from the point of view of, of pre-existing residents in, in houses that, that you know this was a bit of a monster landing in their, in their street. Um, but um, I don't, on the other hand, get any feeling of resentment uh, uh, from people. Uh, but, um, yeah, my wife Pam's got uh, a friend across the road uh, in, in one of the houses. But, um, yeah, largely I think we do keep ourselves to ourselves. Yeah. Um, so both Park Lane actually, I think has really um, reinvigorated the area for, for, for the park. I think before we, the building was um, developed, it, it was quite a, not a nice environment. Um, 
and it's, it's also a dog park during the afternoons. And when we first moved in, you know, the amount of dogs that are now coming in in the afternoons from people coming out from the east through the laneway has really um, increased. So I think the community really are happy that that connection's been made. Um, the, the soccer club that, that um, trains there, I think, you know, all the facilities are starting to be improved now by the council. So it's really, yeah, changed that whole area. It's uplifted, uplifted some of the whole area. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, yeah, we've been, I think it's been a good outcome for the community. Jen, did you want to I'll just add that we, um, we are on Fairfield Station. So um, we, not me, some people in the building um, work with Fairfield Stationers. So we're, they're maintaining that sort of space around the station, which is nice. Um, but yeah, we, we're generally surrounded by shops and um, uh, um, we did have a little argument with Nikos over COVID because generally like you would have hundreds of people congregating because you couldn't go into the cafe kind of thing out there. But, um, you know, generally it's okay um, I think there's always people in the community that are going to be, you know, um, antagonistic. So we have wire on our balconies because Vic Track said it was a requirement of the planning permit, um, like a, a mesh. And a few of the people was like, I've had enough of this, I'm taking it off. And one of the neighbours wrote to council and said they're in breach of their... Um, so we just put it up again. But, you know, he was out there like going, yes, they've put it back up. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Well, I hope um, that's pretty much what we've got time for today and I hope it's been a valuable and interesting kind of uh, discussion and insights into actually the live reality of these projects. Um, so just thanks again to M Pavilion for hosting the event and to RMIT Place Lab and the fantastic team. <laughs> uh, wouldn't have been possible without you. Um, and thanks also to all of you for your interest. But especially thanks go to our fantastic panel, Johannes, Ray and Jean. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your insights and um, very much in appreciation. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.